Holy Father, we bless your name for who you are. Uh, I don't know if my brothers and sisters are like I am. I have a sneaking suspicion they are. There are times in my life in which I get so frustrated with the stuff in front of me and I, I'm tempted to get blinded by circumstances or the voice of uncertainty and the, the fear and anxiety that rises out of the unexpected. And my heart does not sing what my head acknowledges that you alone are God. And Lord Jesus, I pray today, oh, how I pray today, that our hearts will be set free. Free to soar. Free to transcend our trials and circumstances. Free to experience the boundless joy that you say is ours in you. I pray for that person that doesn't know Jesus, that they will find Jesus today, that he will find them today, and that they will walk out of their darkness, and that they will experience the sunlight of his love and the the brilliance of his grace and, and, and the incredible experience of his mercy. Lord, you alone are righteous, and that is good news. So, Father, we pray that you'll speak to our hearts today. Oh, God, meet us where we are. As we look at a section of Scripture that has our address all over it, may we know how to get through the stuff that's facing us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and good morning, fellowship. I'm glad you didn't go on spring break. I tell you, all last week, I was like twitching. Everybody that I ran to, oh, I won't be there Sunday. I'm going on spring break. Won't be there Sunday. I started to call in sick today. I mean, I'm on spring break. <laughs> but it's so good to see you this morning. And just to add my word to Shane's, if you're visiting with, with us today, I want to say a couple of things. Thank you for coming. You didn't have to come. And thank you for choosing fellowship. And the other thing i like to say, just to underscore what he said, if, if there's any way that we can serve you at all, would you please let us know? We really mean that. you got questions about our church, questions about our vision, questions about how to get connected. We have some people out there in the commons area. They can help you. If you can't get your question answered, well, just just go online, send us a quick email to fbconline.org, and we'll try to get that, get that question answered, answered for you. Well, I'm going to say what I always say. My wife says, well, you stop saying that. And that is, got a long ways to go and a short time to get there. So uh, want to do that. I, I'm, I'm very excited today. We're beginning a brand new series entitled Faith Works. And by the way, kudos, kudos to Richard Hopkins and his team, those who helped. Isn't this great? Faith works. They do a good job. I got to let you in on a little, little secret. They forbid me to come to any creative artistic meetings. I am forbidden to do that. You see, I flunked stick figures in school. You know, so anything artistic, they say, Crawford, just we'll deal with that. Tell us if you like it, but we don't need you to mess this up. But they don't say that, but that's what they mean. I take it personally. But at any rate. But we're going to do a brand new series on the book of James. I, I want to I say this to you. Some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, some of you might think to yourself, well, Crawford, how do you, how do you guys choose what you're going to preach on? 
I'm going to tell you why I've chosen uh, this series. Preaching is different from speech making. Preaching is different from giving talks, um, at least the way I view it and we view it here. Preaching is a profoundly spiritual exercise, and it is an enormous responsibility that I feel on my shoulders as a senior pastor to feed you from the Word of God. And what gives, strikes me with a bit of holy fear is to realize that I cannot be cavalier about that because God knows what you're facing, I don't. And so I can't make assumptions about what I should say or just to, just to choose the relevance thing, whatever fits. And so I spent a lot of time on my knees before God asking him, Lord, what do you want me to say? And several months ago, as I took a look at our calendar in this year and sought the Lord about God you know, what, what would you have me to say? And he placed on my heart several of these series, the Choices series, and this series on the book of James. It is an incredible book in the New Testament, and I want to give you just a little bit of an introduction to the book. It is, it is, it is really a powerful book. It is very straightforward, as you'll see, and if you've ever read the book of James, extremely straightforward. It's straightforward in, in this sense. It's like 1 John in the sense that 1 John is very straightforward, and we did that series. But it's unlike 1 John in this way. 1 John is written in a circular way. Uh, John wasn't concerned about being sequential, and so, uh, you know, you'll find him repeating certain things but going deeper in the same subject matter. Well, James is, is like that too, but it's not circular. James is just straightforward, and so it's easy to read through it. Now, here's the challenge with James. James is not right, however, like the Apostle Paul right. He is a brilliant writer where it's very logical, very sequential, and you see how you see this thread building as you read through his epistles. James is more choppy, and so you'll find that within the chapters alone, there might be two or three different subjects that he's speaking to. They're not necessarily, necessarily related. But it's just straightforward, good, wholesome, direct talk to our hearts about the relevance of dynamic Christianity and how faith indeed works. Now, James, obviously, he wrote this book. He is the brother of Jesus. I should say, technically, he's the half-brother of Jesus. And there's very little argument among scholars, particularly evangelical conservative scholars, in terms of his authorship of this book. The, the, the date in which he wrote the book, which is really pretty important here, most scholars believe that James wrote this book probably in the mid-40s A.D. Why is that important? Because it is so fresh. It's written probably within 15 years of his brother, half-brother, Jesus, dying and resurrecting and going to heaven. James himself died in, uh, in A.D. 62, so most scholars put this probably somewhere in the mid-40s there. The theme of the book is faith works. Now, I won't unpack that just now. Wait a couple of weeks until we get to chapter two. By that, I don't mean he's not talking about that we work for our faith, but he's talking about dynamic faith really works in terms of our lives, that we demonstrate our relationship to Jesus Christ by the lives that we live. And so this book is enormously practical enormously practical. And he touches on all kinds of issues. As we'll go through, we'll see those things. Now, the key verse, in my estimation, the key verse is over in chapter 2, verse 17. I really believe this whole section 
on faith without works is dead is really the, the core content of the book and everything else comes from that. But chapter 2, verse 17, James says it negatively, but what he says is that so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith without works is dead. Saying it positively, he's saying that faith is meant to transform our lives. Faith in the Bible was never meant to be theoretical. Our Christianity was never meant to be theoretical. It was never meant to just be lived out in our heads and debated. It's meant to change us, to transform us, and to greet the challenges that we, we face. Now, the audience that James writes to are those who are part of uh, the theologians call it the, the diaspora. What do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 1 of James chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. What in the world does dispersion or diaspora mean? What does that mean? Well, it's very simple. These are the Jewish Christians who came to Christ Shortly after Pentecost, the development of the church, the persecution began to ratchet up, the fire got turned up, and they had been driven out and dispersed, literally dispersed. So James writes this letter in hopes that this letter would be found in the hands of these Jewish believers who have been scattered. Many of these Jewish believers are poor. They're very, very poor. You'll see this later on as we go through the book and those sections on the rich and the poor and underscoring wealth. Uh, he writes these Jewish believers who happen to be uh, very, very poor. Now, word about the tone of the book. I happen to disagree with some folks uh, who, who want to say that James is, is kind of like in your face, harsh, um, that kind of. Now, it's plain spoken, but I think James strikes a balance. I think he strikes the balance. On one hand, as you read through the, 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 the epistle, James does not mince words. He gets to the bottom line. In a, very, in a very real sense, he's similar in language to John, 1 John. He gets right to the bottom line. But although this is a book of direct commands that are coupled with deep compassion, where do you get that from? I want you to notice when you go home, and I want to encourage you to do this, go home and read this book. One of the things I'd like for you to do, though, is if you could, it's a short book, read it in one sitting. And the reason why I'd like for you to read it in one sitting is that you just get the overall flavor of it. Just, just sit down and read it in one sitting. And, and, and what you'll find, there, that he says 15 times in this short book, he uses the endearing expression, my brothers, my brothers, my brothers. My brothers. And so before he drops something really heavy on you. Nah, I mean, you guys are just so demented laughing at that. Before he drops something really heavy on you, he, he assures them that, you know, I'm saying this because I really do care about you. You get this feeling as you read the book that James is concerned. The clock is ticking. Life is short. You really need to know this. Your faith is important. Don't throw that away. And here's how you can address the issues. My brothers. It's a loving way of saying, I love you, man. Get after it. I'm your cheerleader, but don't park it. I want you to win and I want you to be nurtured. But, you know, you got to put the pedal to the metal some. Okay, let's go. And that's what the book really is all about. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I, I, um, 
I'm going to be preaching 14 messages from this book. We're going to stay here for a while. We're going to stay here for a while. You know, uh, in, in our ADD culture, where you can't have, don't, Crawford, don't preach any more than four to six messages in a series to people, you know? Just, it's a little much. Uh, I, you know, my goal here, this is such rich stuff. I want us, this is my goal, even if you're new believers, by the time we get through this, even if you're a new believer, I want you to be able to pick up your Bible and understand this book. I want you to be able to teach it and to share it. And so I'm going to stick very closely to the text here. I don't want to mess it up by my insights, if I have any insights to give. So we're going to walk through 14 messages. Now today I want to talk about how to get through. It's amazing, the very first thing that James says as he writes to these, these Christians who have been scattered, who have been under persecution, who are poor, who are uncertain. The first things out of his mouth is he talks to them how to get through trials. That's James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And let me just read the passage to you. He says, count it all joy. Here's the slide, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I have a confession to make to you. I struggled with the approach to this message today. In fact, all last week, and uh, as I thought to this, I was tempted tempted to read the text and make a few comments about the text and just just tell stories of people who have gone through hard times and trials. And I do think that there's a place for that. But I decided not to do that. And what pushed me over to not doing it was because of the sage, direct wisdom that James is giving to us that I did not want to be lost in compelling stories. But I, I, wanna, I want us to roll back and spend time in this passage. James is probably one of the easier books of the Bible when it comes to the paragraphs to outline because he is so straightforward. So my outline is not very fancy. James is very clear. He says, here are the two things. When you're faced with suffering and hard times, when you're faced with trials and you're faced with things that, you know, that wasn't, on your, wasn't on your plan, How do you get through that? He says it directly. He says, number one, count it all joy. And number two, go after wisdom. Count it all joy and go after wisdom. Now, let me back up just a little bit before I unpack those things. I, uh, I've always known this, obviously, I wasn't a spring chicken when I came here to pastor, and I had experiences. I, I've always known that people go through tests and trials. 
Well, one of the great lessons in, uh, that I've learned and learned to appreciate deeply since being a pastor here five and a half years is the amazing depths of what some of you all experience and how it blesses my soul when I talk to you. So many of you, I go to try to encourage, I get an email that you, so you're going through a hard time and I pick up the phone to call or whatever. I'm calling to encourage you <laughs> and most of the time you profoundly encourage me. We're all going through stuff, the litany of stuff. I'm talking to folks out here now, you lost your job, you don't know where the money's coming from, you, you just found out your husband's been unfaithful, your wife has been unfaithful, or, you know, you got relational challenges, there are just huge family issues that are there, there's the assortment and plethora of just the menu of stuff that happens in all of our lives. Well... How do you handle these things? What do you go? What do you do? In preparation for this message, I, I read an article, or a very helpful article, by a guy by the name of J. Hampton Keithley III. What a great name. Uh, he wrote this article entitled, Why Christians Suffer. And uh, his opening paragraph really grabbed me. And I'll just read, it's a brief paragraph, I'll just read what he says. He says, Why me? Why now? What is God doing? Suffering is a tool God uses to get our attention to accomplish his purposes in our lives. It is designed to build our trust in the Almighty. But suffering requires the right response if it is to be successful in accomplishing God's purposes. Now here's a line. Here's a line. Suffering forces us to turn from trust in our own resources to living by faith in God's resources. I think in that one line, he has captured the basic New Testament teaching on suffering. That God gives us sufferings and trials to shift the focus from our resourcefulness to his resourcefulness. To pull us away from our bent towards self-control and wanting to predict and manage our lives to abandonment and falling into the arms of our great God. And I want to say this to you today. These words are hard to come out of my mouth, but it is a teaching of the New Testament, and that is that, believe it or not, suffering is a profound gift from a loving God. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for you it has been granted to not only believe in Jesus Christ, but it's been granted also to suffer for his sake. So trials and suffering and hard times, they are gifts from God. You will never read one clause in the New Testament that says suffering is evil. Not one. Now, before we move again into the text, I do want to make a distinction because I think basically there are two kinds of suffering, two kinds. One I call negative suffering and the other one is positive suffering. What do you mean by negative suffering? Well, negative suffering are the consequences of sin and disobedience. That's not a trial. That's not a trial. Uh, you break the law, you go to jail. 
Don't say that God has sent me some suffering. No, you broke the law. There are consequences for our sin, and that's in a different category. That's, that's not the suffering that James is talking about here. That's not the suffering that uh, he's directing our hearts toward. That's negative. Those are consequences for bad choices and bad decisions, consequences. But then there's a positive side, and this is what I believe James is referring to here. These are known as trials or testing of our faith, uh, things that happen that, you know, they're not consequences, sicknesses and all these other things that come visiting us and somebody else's bad choices that I had nothing to do with, but I'm splattered with it. They're trials. They're hard things. Now, there's one principle. I didn't put this on the PowerPoint, but I, 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 the, there's one overarching principle that you can wrap around James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, and it's this one, and it's a huge one. And if you don't get anything else from what I say today, please grab a hold of this principle. The principle is this, and that is that there is no stability in the Christian life without uncertain trying times. Now, that's not some little cute statement that I put together to tweet the folks who follow me. This is, a, this, is an, this is a very important thing for most Christians to grab a hold of, for all of us to grab a hold of, that, that, that there is no stability in the Christian life, paradoxically, without uncertain trying times. The way God creates stability in our lives, and we're going to see this in a second, is through uncertainty. The way he makes us strong, stable followers of his is to send us unpredictable circumstances out of nowhere. That's how he does it. And that's the reason for it. And I know it's counterintuitive because we don't think that way. But that's what he does. Now, James tells us that there are two ways to get through these trying times. I mentioned them already. Count it all joy, verses 2 through 4. And number 2, go after wisdom, verses 5 through 8. So let's just walk through this text. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. There are three questions, I believe, that James raises, or three questions that he answers in verses two through four. The first question is, under what circumstances should I count it all joy? The second question in verse two is, for what reason? And the third question is, for how long? Okay, under what circumstances, for what reason, and for how long? And I want, you to, I want you to look at what he says here. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy. What James is saying to these believers is that the way to get through your trial is to borrow joy from your outcome. Listen to me. Listen, hear, hear me. The way to get through your trial is to borrow joy from your outcome. Now, I want you to pay attention to what he's saying here because some of you could be insulted by his words. He said, Crawford, you know, please don't trivialize suffering. Don't trivialize my pain. Don't trivialize the fact that I've been out of work for two, three years, as one lady told me at the end of the first service. She didn't say don't trivialize, but she just told me she had been out of work that long. Don't, 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 don't trivialize the fact that, 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 you know, I found out my husband's having an affair. Don't, don't, please don't trivialize that. James is not trivializing that. 
James is not trivializing that these people are poor. He's not trivializing that they're sick. He's not being glib. He's not telling them that the hell that they're going through is joyful. That's not what this text says. It is not to be read that way. But what James is saying, now hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. What James is saying is, make a decision about your circumstances that focuses on outcome and not the condition. So he says, count it all joy. He's not saying that what you're going through is joyful, but he's saying, consider it joy. Consider it joy, because at the end of the pain, there's going to be a payoff. And so you look beyond that, and your greatest friend in the midst of trials is vision. Look beyond that and get a clear picture of what you're going to become. Borrow from that, draw down from that, to keep you going right now. All joy, a joy that is full and unmixed. Now the word count here, it's an accounting term, it's pretty obvious, but it's a combination of two words which imply certainty with regard to the way we think. Paul used this term too, and whenever he used it, he used it, he used it in a way that meant finality of decision. It was a historic decision. Uh, you know, if you go over to Philippians chapter 3 and he gives his testimony there in verse 7, he says, all that was considered gain to me, get this, get this, he says, I count it as loss. I count it as loss. I, I, think, I think what James is saying, and Paul said it too, is to make a decision about your circumstances. Don't just allow the pain of what you're going through to decide how you're going to think. Don't let the pressure of where you are determine your mindset. I really believe that James is saying, hey, take control of your mind right now. Make up your mind, Crawford, to count this is joy. And he says it doesn't make any difference what it is. In fact, he's intentionally vague here in this opening clause. He says, count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So I'm not going to tell you what they are. I don't know what they are. You know, and at a certain point, it doesn't really make difference, any difference what they are. Here's what your mindset needs to be. And by the way, that word meet there really it's really important. It, it, it's an indication as to how trials come to us when you meet them. It's sort of like, I didn't schedule this. This wasn't on my calendar. This wasn't part of my strategic plan. This wasn't in my thinking. I mean, we didn't say, okay, oh, very good. The house will catch fire at two o'clock on Thursday afternoon. No, no, no. It's sort of the same idea as over in Luke chapter 10. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan, the dude that was coming down from the the, the crowded thoroughfare from Jerusalem to Jericho? And and, and Jesus said, I I love this choice of words, Jesus said, and he fell among robbers. You ever feel like that when trials come to you? You go, whoa! 
And, you know, my mother used to say, it, it seems like, son, hard time comes in threes. You know, they don't just come one at a time. It's just, bam! I didn't plan for that. And yeah, at that, that point, you, you count it all joy. And again, I, let me say a word about trials here. I'm not trying to impress you with any knowledge of the Greek, but he uses a word. It's perasmos, 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 perasmos. It's translated trials, but it's the same word that's also translated temptation. And the way the word is translated depends on the context. Uh, Next week, we're going to talk about verses 12 through 15, and uh, where he talks about temptation. He uses the same word that's translated for trial up in up here in verse 2, the same word is translated temptation down here in this section. And that's because it all depends on the context in which the word is used. Now, the difference between a trial and a temptation, a trial is the testing of your spiritual vibrancy and faith. A temptation is something that entices you to sin. A trial is, is, is a test of your vibrancy, test of your, your endurance, test of your faith. A trial is something that solicits us to do evil and wrong. So there is, there is a difference between the two. Count it all joy. Well, under what circumstances? When you fall under various trials. The second question that he answers, he raises is, for what reason? For what reason? The opening of verse 3 says, for you know, for you know. Again, I, I, uh, some messages are meant to be inspirational, and this is not one of them. For you know. He uses a Greek term that's very interesting. The Greek word that he uses that, that's translated know is the word gnosko. It means things that you only know as a result of experience. Interesting. He says, I... I want you to count it all joy. I want you to borrow from the outcome to sustain you during this trial. And the reason for that is that there's something that you need to know. No, not no, no. Not no, no. Not no, no. I I, I want you to be able to talk about this stuff with impeccable credibility. I don't want you just to articulate it, but I want you to, I want you to know the faithfulness of God. I want you to know that God is bigger than your circumstances. I want you here, here, no, here, no, no. That God can see you through. I don't want you to have some superficial theoretical Christianity. So you, you, you have to test me right now. I want you to know there's a pain of problems, but there's also the profit of persistence. That's what he's saying. There's no gain in endurance without some investment in trials. You can't have endurance unless there's some investment in trials. Now, it's interesting how James defines trials here. Look at the text here. He says in verse 1, when you fall into various kinds of trials. 
And now he defines trials descriptively, for he says in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith, that's what a trial is, the testing of your faith. You see the relationship. The trial is a testing of your faith. It doesn't make any difference what it is. If it's not a solicitation of evil, it's a trial. And it's for the testing of your faith. You know, unless we've been through something, we don't have faith. We just have beliefs. And faith is only developed in the crucible of testing and opposition and pain. And you only can have a strong faith, a resilient faith, unless uh, uh, when you've resisted something. When you've pressed into something, and I got to I got to tell you, 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 one of the things I see too in too many believers is that we're always running from the difficult. The heat gets turned up on us, we cut and run. I see this sometimes in the parents of teenagers. We, we bail them out of stuff. And we're penny wise and a pound foolish because they're going to need to go through that stuff to get the strength to be able to be a good husband and a good father and a good mother and a good wife and a good independent citizen. So he says, this has come to you for the testing, the testing of your faith. You know, exercise, when you exercise, you don't get in shape by doing the bare minimum. I've tried it. (laughs) I do it all the time. You don't get in shape by just doing the bare minimum. You don't get in shape, you know, by doing it until you don't want to do it anymore. The way you get in shape is by pushing past what you don't want to do. Ah, that's where you get the bennies right there. Ah, the bennies come when the muscles start hurting. And you start panting. You know you're pressing through. And so he says, these trials come to push you to the limits. God's goal for us in trials, God's goal for us in trials is to produce in us steadfastness. Uh, it's, it's translated, some translations use endurance, great translation. Steadfast is great translation. Patience is another great translation. My dear friend uh, James McDonald has written a wonderful book. Uh, some of you may have read it. It's, it's one of the, when someone's going through a hard time, I will always recommend this book. One of the best little books I've ever read on suffering. It's called When Life is Hard. And I love what James does in that book because he points out in the book that, and this is, this is accurate, that Paul uses the Greek, I mean Paul, James uses the Greek word hupermeno, hupermento, which literally means to bear up under. It means to bear up under. It means to stay under the load. And it is in the staying under the load that you develop, you develop the strength to put up with stuff. And so the vision here that James is saying to these Jews who have been scattered, they're poor and they're uncertain. He says, look, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're developing some equity here. Keep paying the mortgage, man. Keep paying the mortgage. Don't default on your spiritual mortgage. 
Stay under this thing. Stay under it. Hang in there. Hmm. You've heard this before, but true faith is it's like gold. Gold that endures no matter how hot the fire. And it's this true, pure faith that produces the staying power that you need, that you need, that you need. So don't run. Don't quit. Don't get angry at God. Stay under. Stay under. Well, for how long? How long? Verse 4 answers that and says, And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. <laughs> Lacking in nothing. Well, how long do you stay there? Until God is finished. Until God is finished. That's how long you stay there. You, 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 you don't project on God your timetable for your lessons that you need to learn. God, I'm going to put up with this for another two months. Really? <laughs> really? Jesus, did you hear with that? Crawford says he's got two months and he's out of here. Let's give him another three. No, no, you, 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 you know, you, you don't control what God does in your life. Did you hear what I just said there? One of the hard lessons I've learned, Crawford, I don't control what God does in my life. If I did, he would cease to become God. God is passionate about my development. God is passionate about your growth. And he will even hurt me in order for me to grow. He doesn't care so much about me being comfortable. Frankly, he doesn't care so much about me liking my circumstances. God sent Jesus for me to be Christ-like. And whatever it takes for me to look like Jesus, that's what he's going to do. So I don't tell him how long or what to do. We respond to him no matter what he does in and through our lives. You know, we stay under this thing. I have friends of mine, I, um, I share the details, but last year, Karen and I went through an extraordinarily challenging, trying time. Not many people knew about it, but a lot of, number of the leaders here in the church did, and I just thank God. You don't, you know, you, you don't suffer alone. Don't run to isolation when you're going to hard times. Thank God. So many of them would call and say, Crawford, <laughs> and I would love several of them. I'm thinking of one guy especially. One of our elders would call and say, Crawford, how you holding up? That's a good line. How you holding up? How you holding up? How you holding up? You got to go through it. 
Steadfastness cannot be developed by reading a book, listening to a sermon, or going to a seminar, but only through trials. You're never going to educate your way through a trial. Uh, Maybe I should have said that differently. You're never going to intellectually, solely educate your way through a trial. So you, you can't develop steadfastness and endurance by just reading about it, studying it, and having a small group that goes through it intellectually. It comes through trials. The expression have its full effect is, is, is it means to, to, to quit or give up in the middle of your trial is to throw away what you need to get by. We, 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 we need time for the lessons to stick. And I might add this to you, uh, add this uh, for you, and that is that your trial is not my trial. God is not into standardized tests. So don't, co- don't compare yourself to somebody else. There's a point at which I know, I know it's good to say we're not in this alone, and that's very helpful to know that we're not by ourselves, and Peter says that, that kind of thing. But there's a point at which you've got to drop that talk because your trial is your trial. It's for you. Crawford, it's for you. It's, not, it's for you, and it's not standardized. So you can't write a book. By the various scenarios and time segments on when your trial should be through. No, 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 no. We got to learn those lessons and we go through it until God says it adheres, it sticks. Uh, uh, a couple of months ago, we had in, our, in the master bathroom in our house, uh, we have a, a mirror on the wall that goes all the way across the wall over both, both the sinks. There's a walk-in closet on the other side. And I was in the closet this one day and all of a sudden I hear this, Bloom, 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 bloom. And I walk out, and there the mirror had pulled away from the wall. And the only reason why it didn't shatter in a million pieces was because there's a, a bank of lights right up here, and it just, the lights just kind of caught it. And that was the noise that I heard. And I'm going, whew, man, that could have been really bad. So I went to Home Depot, and me going to Home Depot is not a good thing, but I did that. Just wanted to act the man. And, uh, so I went to Home Depot, and I, I, uh, I, the guy, you know, they're great people there. They say, you can do it, we can help. No, I can't do it, but you better help. So I went there, and I got this, this little stuff. He told me how to do it and this kind of thing. And I really impressed Karen because I said, no, I got this, baby. Don't need to call no money. I know how to fix these things. So on, as I read the uh, directions on the, on the tube, it said, uh, put on the back of one surface, that, and put on the other surface, or if it's a wall, and wait. Wait. If you don't wait these many minutes, chances are it won't adhere. That's what God says to us. I'm putting some sticky stuff on you right now, okay? But if you get out of this too fast, it's not going to stick. You need this in your heart and in your life. And again, the vision is for us to be complete, lacking in nothing. That's a statement of maturity, not perfection. Uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29 is a vision of our church. We have to grow up in Christ, and there is no growth and development 
apart from these trials. I'm glad for baseball season. I love baseball. Love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And by the way, by the way, if I'm in my car and you're riding with me and the Braves are on the radio, don't talk to me, okay? <laughs> so let you know up front, I'm not sociable at that point. And uh, chances are I have to pray about leaving the house that they're pro- playing from 7 to 9.30 in the evening. It's great. I love the game, love the game. But, you know, all great batters, the truly great hitters, now I'm going to use a, an expression, you're, you're going to think this is crazy, but the truly great hitters don't have, and they call this, holes in their swing. What do you mean holes in your swing? Well, you know, the truly great hitters have fluid swings, and they can hit the ball wherever it's pitched. Sometimes you get guys who have a hitch in their swing, and so pitchers will catch up with that. And the way you do that, especially in a right-hand batter, is that you, if you can bust it in the air 90 miles per hour, you can make them turn the corner there, okay? Some guys can't hit, for whatever reason, an off-speed breaking ball on the outside part of the plate. They call that holes in their swing. But the truly great batters, like a Chipper Jones, and it appears that this kid Haywood has got that in him too, Wherever you pitch it, if it's in the zone, they can hit it. doesn't make any difference. And what God does with trials is he takes the holes out of our swing. He takes the holes out of your swing, and that's what he's doing. I want you to be complete. I don't want you to lack anything, Crawford. So I'm going to hurt you to help you. I need to land a plane here. You know, I have never met a mature follower of Christ who does not have a trophy case full of trials. I've met one. I have not met anyone who has followed Jesus, discipling others, making an impact with their lives, who does not have a trophy case full of trials. And it's those trials that have made them real and authentic and rich and attractive. Now, he says, secondly, go after wisdom. He says it's ours for the asking. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. He's saying to him, look, look, this is what you need. This is what you need. You need wisdom, and God's not holding it back. You're uncertain in your trials. That's what trials are all about. Okay, I'm certain. If you lack wisdom, it's yours for the asking. Go after it. But I want to suggest to you not to waste a lot of time trying to figure out why when you're in a trial. That's the biggest temptation. The biggest temptation is to get paralyzed by the question why. I'm not saying why is not important. Why is a very important question, but not when you're in the midst of a trial. In the midst of your chaos, resist the temptation of asking why, but rather ask the wisdom question. What is that? How do we get through this? That's the wisdom question. The wisdom question is always how. Wisdom deals with skill. How do I leverage what I know about you to address where I am? Ask the wisdom question. In a trial, we don't just need knowledge, although we do need that, but we need skill. It's one thing to know that you're standing in a minefield. It's quite another thing to know how to walk through it without getting blown up. So what we need in trials is God to tell us, how do do I, I walk through this? 
And the second part of this whole wisdom piece is a little strange thing here. I, I wondered, as I read this text, I wondered, why is James so strong on this whole doubt thing? It almost seems like it comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? I mean, when you read this passage, there's a little bit of tenderness in verses 2 through 4. Then he tells us to go after wisdom. And then, man, he sort of like haymakers us with this doubt thing. Well, I think he's strong on that because doubt is your biggest enemy in trials. It's our biggest enemy. That's where we win or lose the battle, and it's the enemy's chief weapon. When you come to think of it, the very thing that you need, doubt, is the opposite. Doubt entrenches uncertainty. And the trial has to produce certainty. You got to have a clear focus of God. So here we find James giving us this, the five devastating effects of, of doubt. Or, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. For the sake of time, I'll just click off these five devastating effects of doubt. He says, number one, doubt erects a barrier to wisdom. It just erects one here. The, the word doubt means to dispute or be at variance with yourself. It's the idea of uncertainty and confusion. Number two, doubt drowns out faith. Destroys it. Drowns it out. Which leads to the third thing, is, and that is that doubt surrenders to the volatility of our circumstances. Uh, interesting, verse 6 says that we're driven and tossed by the wind. There's no stability. We're back and forth. This, I wonder what's going to happen to me. What's this going to take place? I, I know I prayed. Like it's not happening. And, and they're not, this is, I don't, we're going to lose our house. We're going to lose my family. We're going to lose my marriage. And I, I don't know, but God can do this. But I know he's not doing this. And I, he's just like, all over the place. Number four. Doubt shuts off answered prayer. Strong statement. And let him not think that he'll get anything from the Lord. I need to to balance this a little bit, dare I say. I don't think that James is saying that we never have any doubt. All of us have doubt. But he's saying bring those doubts and fears to Jesus. It reminds me of Mark chapter 9. You know Mark chapter 9? The man who's whose child was sick and demon-possessed. And Jesus said, do you believe? I love his answer. I've been here so often. He said, Lord, I believe. Will you help my unbelief? Yeah, take it to him. Take your doubts to him. But don't just sit there with him. Take him to Jesus. And then number five, he says... Doubting produces a double mind in an unstable life. You know, the expression double-minded, actually, literally, that means two souls. Literally, that's what the expression translated, double-minded means two souls. You create such incredible confliction. I 
I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I was praying this week, Lord, how do I, how do I end this message? Because I know that I'm talking to people here today. You're, 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 you're at that point where you're saying, you know, Crawford, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time counting it all joy. And I'm having a hard time going after wisdom. I want to do that. Will you pray? Pray for me. I'm going through a struggle right now. Will you pray for me? I'm going to do this today. I don't do this real often here. One of the reasons for trials, I believe, is to get us to embrace humility. I really do. And so I'm going to ask you, if you're going through something right now, and you're struggling with joy, you really are. And you want this wisdom piece, but you just need help. I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. I'd love to pray for you. That's where you are. That's where I am. That's where I am. I want to pray for you. But if you're here and you don't know Jesus... He wants to step into your life and give you himself and to cleanse you from all of your sin. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you right now, but what I also would like to do at the end of our service, if some of you would like for us to pray for you personally, I'm going to have uh, myself as well as some of our leaders up front, perhaps in their wives, and we'll, we'll be here. We would just love to pray with you. I got to tell you, if this was a couple of months ago, I'd be standing up and Who knows, next week I'd be standing up, might be standing up myself. But we can't go through these things by ourselves. So I'm going to pray and the team will sing our benediction. And if you want us to pray more with you or to chat with you, just come up front at the end. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word. Thank you, oh God, that you love us. You love us. You love us so much that you want us to get everything that we need. Father, we hurt, but you're greater than our hurts. So I pray for every person here. Lord Jesus, will you give them what they need? Oh, God, will you give them what they need? For those who are on the verge of throwing in a towel, will you tell them just one more step? Will you let yourself be made known to them? Will they know the love of God as never before? Father, I pray that they'll reach out to friends and not be embarrassed to share 
that I'm hurting right now. I need you to help me. I need you to pray for me. I need you to encourage me. Will you bring back to their minds passages of Scripture that they have forgotten about? May it come rushing to their heads. May they, in their own darkness, may they sense and feel the breath of God on them. May they feel your certainty in the midst of their uncertain circumstances. Oh, God, encourage their hearts, I pray. Go with them and meet their every need. Father, use them even in the midst of their trial. Thank you for what you will do in Jesus' name.